Well, um, I've never asked to give an encore teaching before. Um, I actually taught this a few couple months ago um, at Soma Youth. I'm the youth pastor here at Soma Church. We have an incredible group of kids. We have about 40 kids that come to youth group on Wednesday nights, and I love them. Um, in fact, tonight our discipleship class is having a retreat at our at our house. This is our last discipleship class for the year. You guys will probably remember that um, about 24 kids have been intentionally seeking the Lord, studying the Word, going through um, studies, listening to podcasts, memorizing scripture, meeting with mentors, and doing service projects each each month. And um, they have been faithfully doing their work and um, doing their best. And I'm really proud of them, even though that means they probably did half of their soap journals this morning. So they had 16 due. I bet if I asked them to raise their hand, all of them had at least six they did this morning. So, but I'm not going to put them on the spot for that. So um, they're getting ready to do an SST um, in July. 14 of the 24 are going on the SST, and I've been super proud of the work and the diligence. So when I was preparing this message, um, the whole time I was preparing for it, I kept imagining that the parents were supposed to be in there, and I thought, man, the youth are not going to love this to invite the parents of teens life group in on our territory, but I just couldn't shake it. So I, I messaged the leaders of the parents of teen life group and said, Hey, could we get the parents to join us? Because this topic is something I feel like, um, the family needs to embrace. And so they came and, um, it was a sweet time. And then I had parent after parent after parent, not necessarily teenagers, but that's okay. I don't take that personally. Um, But I had parent after parent say, you need to present this to the church. You need to bring it before the church. And um, it's a topic that um, I feel like we, the minute we hear it, we tend to tune out. And it's the topic of forgiveness. Um, I feel like maybe one of two responses, you either say, yeah, that doesn't apply to me, or I don't want that to apply to me. So... But the reality is that it is that it does. So if you guys will turn to 2 Corinthians, we're going to start there. I like to be in the Word a lot in teaching. So go to 2 Corinthians 2. This will be our main text of the evening. Paul is writing the church of Corinth. Undoubtedly, some news had come to him about someone in particular, starting in verse 5, chapter 2. He says, I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you, as I did, to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man... I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. Verse 11, underline it. So that Satan will not outsmart us. For we are familiar with his evil schemes. Paul is writing this church about this man who caused trouble. So scholars believe that this was a man who was dis- disparaging the Paul's good name. He was disparaging the church. And um, the church took it very personally. They were very hurt by him. Paul himself had even been hurt by him and it gave cause for him to forgive. And so this man had caused some trouble. And each of us, regardless of our age, have had opportunities to forgive because of a man who may have caused trouble or a woman or a boy 
or a girl. We would have to be hermits, avoiding all humanity, to uh, have reason to extend forgiveness, to not have that reason. You just have to isolate yourself from community, isolate yourself from people. But Tom Hanks kind of proved to us in Castaway that even that scenario is not void of the potential offense and need to forgive. After all, Wilson, a volleyball, angered him. Even hermits living in caves, men isolated on islands could find reason, whether real or perceived, past memories or current issues to have to forgive someone. Jesus would not have talked about it so much if he hadn't have known of our absolute need to forgive and how important it was going to be to us to forgive. He wouldn't have come to earth. He wouldn't have modeled it. He wouldn't have extended it had he not thought it was of utmost importance. In fact, the concept of forgiveness is mentioned over 150 times in the Bible. Seems pretty important to me. Yet somehow in our lives in Christendom, in the church, as believers, we've quickly passed over this concept of forgiveness as though it were optional. That we somehow have to feel like forgiving in order to forgive. The reality is that I've come to discover in 42 years of living is that all of us have a stronghold or have had a stronghold of unforgiveness. Now, I really need to define stronghold. I had the, the privilege for weeks to build up to this topic with the youth group. We talked about the voices that we could hear. And I'm not talking about like, you know, voices. But we could hear the voice of the Lord, the voice of truth. We could hear our own voice or we could hear the voice of the enemy. And so we've been learning how to distinguish those. But we also talked about the anatomy of a stronghold. Now, up until a couple years ago when I attended the Kairos um, Freedom Ministry of Gateway, I kind of thought a stronghold was something really demonic. I thought it was like something, you know, that the devil must have have you really trapped inside of something. But the reality is, is that a stronghold is any wrong pattern of thought. That's what a stronghold is in our lives. Any wrong pattern of thinking about a scenario. Now, we studied the anatomy of a stronghold. I wish I had time to do that with you guys. I mean, we'd be here all night. But the anatomy of a stronghold goes something like this. An event happens in your life. Something that was done against you or to you or about you that hurt you, that brought suffering, that possibly offended you, made you angry, irritated you. Some event happened in your life. And probably right now, each of you could think of at least one event that has happened that it's hard to let go of. Well, the word says that Satan's native language is lies. And something that he loves to do in times when we've been hurt, when we've been rejected, when we've been offended, when we've been misunderstood, is he loves to come and speak his language. He loves to come and lie. He loves to come and tell you things about that event, about that person who offended you, about that situation, about that institution, about that workplace, about that school. He loves to speak his native language to you. And he loves to lie. And you know what happens in our hurt? In our hurt, we believe it. So the event happens, and then we begin to believe a lie. 
And then that lie begins to build up something in us called a defense. We build up defenses in our hearts against that person, against that situation. And we begin to make a vow. If you were hurt by a parent, if you were hurt by someone you were supposed to trust, you make a vow and you may say, I will never trust again. Or you may say, I will never do that. I will never treat my wife that way. I will never treat my spouse that way. I would never treat my kids that way. And oftentimes our vows, because they're linked to a lie in an event that hurts us, a vow can come out something like this. I cannot forgive them. I will not forgive them. It feels impossible to forgive. They were not justified in what they've done. I cannot forgive that situation. And then a curious thing happens. People's reactions to the vows and to the defenses that we've made up. They're responding to those vows that we have made. And then it perpetuates the whole cycle over and over and over again. And like Paul, I do not want us to be outsmarted by the enemy. When he holds us in this perpetual cycle of a stronghold that's held together by unforgiveness, you're set up to be outsmarted by the enemy of your soul. He says we should be familiar with his evil schemes. Now, there's a few things you guys probably already know about unforgiveness. If you've experienced any unforgiveness in your life, here's a few things you probably already know. Maybe you haven't thought of it this way, but maybe you have been on the other side of unforgiveness and you've walked through that hard journey to forgive and you realize this, unforgiveness shackles you to the offender or to the event. You're shackled to it. Suddenly you're chained to the very thing that you have vowed against just linked to it in your unforgiveness because you cannot stop. You cannot get out of that cycle. Unforgiveness also invites attacks from the enemy. Wide open door for the enemy to come at you. It also works destruction in every area of our lives, whether you have noticed it or not. And yet, here's what happens because we don't want to acknowledge that we might need to forgive because we're afraid of it or because it's become such a deep, rutted habit of our life and pattern of our life. We begin to give little thought to the actual need to forgive and we go searching for other reasons why we might be depressed, why we might be anxious, why we might be angry, why we might be addicted. Surely there's some other reason why. But the door has been opened and destruction starting to work its way in our lives. Now, before we go any further, because I know the reality of having unforgiveness. I know the reality of being hurt. I want to tell you what forgiveness is not, okay? Forgiveness is not denial. When you forgive someone, it is not pretending that what happened is okay, It's not denying that whatever was done to you or said against you was okay. When you forgive someone, you're not denying what they had done. When you forgive, you're also not repressing. 
You're not repressing what they had done. You're not ignoring what they did while storing bitterness, harboring anger. You're not gonna repress it, just keep it down, keep it down, keep it down. All the while, it's building up something destructive in your heart. Forgiveness is also not excusing. It's not excusing that person's behavior. It's not shifting the blame to someone else or or not facing the pain. And a lot of times I think that's what we do. We just think, I'm just, just gonna excuse it. Just keep going, keep going. We file it under some other category. But forgiveness is not excusing and it's not reconciliation. And I think that that's what people are terrified of. They're afraid that if they forgive the person, they may have to reconcile with them. And the reality is, is that it requires honest and active participation of both people involved. And that is not always possible. The person could be dead. The person could be someone you know you absolutely cannot see again. So when the Lord gives the command to forgive, it doesn't mean that you're denying. It doesn't mean that you're repressing. It doesn't mean that you're excusing and it does not mean that you have to reconcile, not to the person anyway. A few years ago, when I was walking through forgiveness in my own life, the Lord gave me a picture of a courtroom. And there were a few key players in this unforgiveness saga that was happening in my life. And maybe you guys can identify with this. The main player, the front and center player in this system of law is the judge, just like in our courtrooms. But James 4.12 says that God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Isaiah 33, 22 says, for the Lord is our judge, our lawgiver and our king. He will care for us and save us. There is a judge front and center and he's sitting on what Exodus 25 says is the mercy seat. He's seated upon atonement that covers for sin. So can you picture the judge in a courtroom front and center? That's creator God, the ancient of days sitting on the mercy seat. Another major player is the accuser. He's dressed up pretty sweet. I can tell you right now, he doesn't have a pitchfork and a pointy tail. He's a smooth operator. Revelations 12, 10 tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And like in Job, he comes before the Lord and he looks to see who he might accuse. Rest assured, in your pursuit of justice, the accuser is present. And he's not just accusing the person on the witness stand. So there are two other people involved in the unforgiveness saga. There's the plaintiff, a person who brings a case against another person. And then there's the defendant, an individual, a company, or an institution like the church who is sued or accused in a court of law. So we have the plaintiff, the one who accuses, and the defendant, the one who's being accused. And I bet if I asked, everyone in this room could say they've probably been both at some point. They've been the one who have pointed at that person on that witness stand and said, he needs to pay. He needs to be held accountable for what he's done. She needs 
to make retribution for what she did to me. But you may also have been the defendant. You may also have been the one that's sitting there facing the accuser and the person who wants payment. Maybe you are the one that's been accused. Maybe you are the one that has not been forgiven. Neither are a great place to be. When we can't forgive, we're essentially holding someone in contempt. We're holding a defendant in court. But when we do that, when we keep a perpetual cycle of unforgiveness in our lives, it's not just holding that person in contempt. It's not just holding that person in court. It's holding ourselves in court. We keep ourselves in the presence of the accuser. We will have no rest, no peace, and no perspective outside the courtroom because we're demanding justice. Day in, day out, our perspective is justice. Justice. They have to pay. It's us versus them until we forgive. And court will forever be in session. Doesn't sound appealing at all, does it? And yet, spiritually, that's what we do when we don't forgive. James tells us that we have an incredible opportunity when we find ourselves in court. When we find ourselves demanding justice, there's an opportunity that we have that can get us out of the crazy cycle of the courtroom. We can say, sir, judge, can I approach the bench? And you can go to the bench and the judge says yes. And you can say, can we go to the judge's chamber? I'd like to plead mercy. James 2.12 says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. We can go and plead for mercy in the judge's chamber. We can stop what's happening, the lack of peace, the lack of rest, the turmoil that's in our hearts because we haven't been pleading for mercy and we can go to him. And in a minute, I'll tell you what happens when you plead mercy. But first, I wanna talk about what happens when we continue to demand justice. And there's something called the injustice gap that happens in our lives. And that's the distance between the wrong that I've experienced and what I have to do to make it right. What the wrong, whatever it was that happened in your life and in the chasm, the gap, the canyon between what you will have to do to make that right. Now here's what happens when we ignore God's command to forgive and we keep ourselves in this gap of injustice. When you're not gonna forgive and you're like, nope, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand what I went through. There's absolutely no way I can forgive this situation, this person. Here's some things that happen. Your sense of injustice will increase the longer one takes to make repayment. Because here's the thing, we want them to pay. We want them to pay for their mistakes and we want them to use the currency that we choose. What's the currency that you have in your heart? What's it gonna take? 
What could that person possibly do or say or pay or give to make it right? In the gap of injustice, the currency loses its value to to make anything right because the reality is nothing apart from God's mercy can make retribution for you. Nothing apart from pleading mercy is going to bring the settlement that you need in your life. I learned years ago in some unforgiveness in my heart towards my dad who had abandoned us that his apologies were powerless. His efforts were powerless. Anything he could try to give or do to make up for the rejection would be powerless. Side note, he didn't offer any of that. But his currency had no value. There was not one thing that my dad could have said or done to make payment, I had to plead mercy. Another thing that happens in that gap between the wrong that we've experienced and what we have to do is make it right is that our sense of injustice increases as that perpetrator is blessed. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Someone's done something to you and they continue to be blessed. They continue to be loved They continue to have a good life. Maybe they didn't get caught. Maybe they never said they were sorry, but you keep seeing the blessing on their life. And the sense of injustice just begins to get higher and higher and higher in your life because you are demanding justice and yet they're being blessed. Did you know that in Matthew 5, 45, It says that for God gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. He's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. But when we're demanding justice, it is so incredibly hard to watch that person be blessed and to have anything good. The reality is we just kind of rather they suffer and pay for what they did. Our sense of injustice also increases as grows our separation from God, because here's the reality. When we don't choose mercy, we are separating ourselves from God. Scripture says that our iniquities have separated us from him. He is too pure to look upon our evil. Matthew eleven forty four, twenty four through 25 says this, and I want you guys to listen. I say this to the youth group all the time. My words are words, but the word of God changes lives. My words can encourage you. They can impart something into you, but you want real change in your life. You listen to the word of God. You hear what God has to say to you. Don't tune out when somebody starts to read the scripture, that's when you really tune in. What you need to take away from a teaching time is the word. What's God saying to us? Because this is what's gonna transform your life. Matthew 11, 24, I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. 
That sounds like an incredible promise. But it goes on to say, but when you are praying, first forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your father in heaven will forgive your sins too. This is a big deal, people. Having our sins forgiven is kind of a big deal. There's a whole lot riding on our sins being forgiven. I don't know what theological camp you're in, but I think that this is important right here. The words of Jesus. We've got to close that gap. We've got to close that gap of injustice. It has to be bridged. We have to plead for mercy. And when you do, when you say, I want to come into the judge's chamber, here's something that immediately happens for you. Okay, three things, three benefits, immediate benefits. When you choose to plead mercy and you choose to forgive, the first is is that you're immediately connected to the gracious heart of God. You are connected immediately when you choose to forgive. You are functioning in a core attribute of who God is when you choose mercy. Forgiveness is the essence of who he is. And you are connected immediately with his heart. If you have found yourself in a season of life, not wondering or wondering where is God? Why can't I hear him? Why does everything seem like a struggle? Why is everything seeming chaotic? Why does it seem like we can't get peace? This situation's out of whack. This situation's out of whack. This situation's out of whack. Let me ask you something. Are you connected to the heart of God? If you are longing for some resolution, for some peace, you know, Tony's been talking about flourishing in the house of the Lord. And you're you're like, that provokes a good jealousy in you, you know, when you start talking about that. Like, yeah, I wanna flourish in the house of the Lord. When you plead mercy for these situations that are either a week old or two years old or 20 years old, some of you guys probably have 50 year old situations and you have been in a perpetual court case in your life. When you plead mercy, you are immediately connected to the heart of God. Immediately. The next thing is, is you close the door to the enemy. Guess what? Guess who doesn't get to be in the judge's chamber when you plead mercy? The accuser. The accuser does not get to be there any longer. Some of you guys need to hear this. You need to act upon it because the accuser is not just accusing the defendant. When we are in the presence of the accuser, he's accusing you too. Everybody's on trial in court. Everybody is. If you have been living under the spirit of accusation, if you have been living under shame, I can promise you the accuser is in the courtroom. The accuser is nearby. But when we plead mercy, we shut the the door on him. I'm like, Can you get the visual of that to not be in the presence of the accuser? I'm like, that's enough to me. Okay, so we get to connect to the heart of God. Score, obviously, numero uno. But we get to shut the door on the accuser, the one who has been harassing us. I don't like being harassed. I certainly don't like to be tormented, but that's that's his MO. He torments you and he likes to keep you in that perpetual place. That's why we have anger off the charts. That's why addiction is off the charts. It's why anxiety and depression is off the charts. There ain't no drug. 
It's a switchfoot line and two kids were singing it. I'm really impressed. Thank you. There's no drug for this. It's mercy. It's mercy. Okay, the other thing is, is that when we release our offender, we liberate ourselves. When you release that person, you have liberated yourself. Court's over. Court's done. Everybody gets to go home. Please, can we just go home? I want that off my back. I don't want to be shackled to that situation that hurt, that offense any longer. Matthew 6, 14 says this. Here's the words. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. If you refuse to forgive others, your sins do not get forgiven. I'm highly motivated by that. You should be too. I'm like, I kind of want to, when I get there, him be like, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want this whole, you know, yeah, sorry. You're going down for that one. I don't know. It's just kind of big. It's kind of huge. Ephesians 4.32 says this, instead be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Be kind to each other. Be tenderhearted. Have you been lacking in kindness? Have you felt hard-hearted in areas of your life? Have you felt a little jaded, a little cynical? little calloused. Ask the Lord to show you who you need to forgive. It's linked. It's linked. You need forgiveness and you need to forgive. Hebrews 4.16 says this. Tony taught weeks and weeks on this so it should be familiar to you. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Let's approach that bench with a confidence like it says that we have. Go to him with a confidence because you know what it says? There you will receive his mercy and you will find the grace to help when you need it the most. Guess what? So you get the mercy. So you're like, okay, I'm gonna plead it. I'm pleading mercy. I'm gonna get it for myself. I'm gonna plead it for the other person. You know what the Lord knows that you're gonna need? Grace. Because you may have to rub shoulders with that person day in, day out. Or in that situation or in that environment. And he's like, I, you're not, you know what? When I give you that mercy, I am also gonna equip you with grace. Do you know what grace is? All that God is made available to us. I'm pretty sure that supersedes your irritation with someone. I'm pretty sure his grace supersedes your addiction. It supersedes your anxiety. It supersedes the abuse and the hurt. And it can bring restoration and it can bring healing. Grace to help us when we need it the most because we're gonna need it. Tony's gonna come up. We're gonna take communion, which I thought was very fitting. If you wanna go ahead and come up, babe. Forgiveness is not a feeling. And I think that somehow we think 
that we have to feel a certain way before we will forgive. I have to feel like forgiving. You do realize that if we waited to feel like it, we would never do it. There's just so much in the word of God that's not about how we feel, but about what we do. This is an act of obedience. Forgiveness is an act of obedience. If you claim to be a child of God, do you know that an act of obedience unto him is to forgive? That it's not optional? We have to strike that from our hearts. That it's somehow optional. That we don't actually have to forgive. We don't have to extend mercy. Because we do. I say all the time that a right action will change a wrong feeling. But this doesn't just change a wrong feeling. This aligns you to the heart of God. This sets you up. This sets you up for the abundance that so many of us are missing. You know what this sets you up for? This sets you up for a spirit of praise. This sets you up for a heart of gratitude that instantly brings you into the presence of the Lord. The benefits are insane. There's not just spiritual benefits to walking in forgiveness. Emotional, physical benefits. I'm gonna ask you guys to stand. Tony's gonna walk us through communion before we do though. I'm gonna give you guys an opportunity to respond. You know, this is one of those things where I feel like you could easily pass over. When you've grown so accustomed to your unforgiveness, when you've gotten so used to the courtroom that's envisioning anything different, any other kind of life, it's not even appealing to you you guys to catch a vision of what the Lord has for you when you forgive because the reality is in a room this size with this many people there's a great percentage of you who need to forgive someone some of you guys need to forgive the church some of you guys have authority figures that you need to forgive whether it's a parent, a boss, someone you were supposed to trust, someone that should have been respectable. So for some of you, it's peers. It was a friend. Some of you could be siblings, family member. ask you guys to close your eyes and Lord we just want to know we want to know show us Lord if there's anyone in here who didn't have anything immediately would you show them if there's something there Lord we just take the event Maybe you guys are picturing an event, something that happened to you or against you or something that you were involved in. I'd like for you to take that event and get that in front and center in your mind. 
Holy Spirit, we ask you to make sense of that. We ask right now that you would come and bring comfort and wisdom. Thank you, God, that that you sent our advocate. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. And in these situations, God, just like this, this event, this stronghold that's happened in our lives, God, Holy Spirit, would you come and empower us to plead for mercy, to forgive. Some of you guys need to outright say, I forgive and fill in the blank. You need to say it. You need to declare it, that you're forgiving it. You need to say, I plead mercy. I choose mercy. I ask for mercy, God, and let the Lord show you how he's gonna heal those areas how you're instantly connected to the heart of God, how you've instantly shut the door of the accuser in your life, and how you've been liberated. God, we ask for freedom now in the name of Jesus. I pray for liberation in hearts tonight. Forgiveness would rule and reign. We would connect with your heart, Father. He goes on to say, Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians, you know, he had written them this very severe letter and he says, I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have so you were not harmed by us in any way for this kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. A lot of times when we hear a message like this, it pricks pain in our hearts. It'll prick pain in our consciousness. And we want to numb it and we want to manage it. We want the anesthesia. We don't want the discomfort that that pain can bring. But here's what the Lord is saying. That pain has a purpose. When it's hurting, if you're wiggling, you're feeling a little uncomfortable, There's a purpose to that. I'm leading you to something. It's to help you recognize, to see the kind of sorrow that God wants you to have. The godly kind that leads to repentance. You know, we learned in youth that repentance is a change of perspective. Some of you guys need a change of perspective in your life to see the situation differently, to see it with eyes of someone who's pleaded for mercy. Tony's gonna walk us through communion. This is a perfect time for us to respond to this message in a tangible way, to plead for mercy, to walk in forgiveness in our lives.